everybody. Hi. Hi, good morning. So uh, we are doing something totally different today. As a part of our series on studying the Bible, we're going to study the Bible together today. So this is why if you were on your way in, you saw a stack of paper right there. That's the verse we're going to be going over. Um, it's, it's landscape and you have a column one, column two. So if you want to write notes on it, you could fold it that way. You know, you're not writing on flimsy paper. And if you want, you can take notes. Uh, this is for you to keep, so you could highlight things, you go underline things. If you need a pen, I bought a bunch of pens from Costco, and you know how like, when it's brand new, you have to kind of scribble a little bit before it starts writing, so you might want to start doing that now. Um, <clears throat> just to give you an overview of what's going to be happening for the rest of the series, today we're going to study um, the Bible together. Next week, Pastor Stan is going to be here, and he's going to share with you guys how to read the scripture in a different way called Lectio Divina, and maybe you've heard people use that word before. It's a meditative, um, it's like an introspective, it's a really interesting way of looking at scripture, and you might actually be doing it without even knowing it, you know? So um, two different ways of studying the scriptures today, next week, and then the following week after that, we're going to take everything we learned, and we're going to go through some difficult passages uh, in Revelation. I was asking you guys, hey, let's, let's put it to practice. Should we do Genesis or Revelation? And I think most of you are like, we're gonna do Revelation. So we're gonna do Revelation for about three weeks, okay? And then after that, we'll have another series and we could enjoy that. So, um, so feel free to take notes. Uh, if you picked up a pen, you could keep it. I only have 30 out there, so um, I don't, we don't have enough for everybody, so share if you need to. Okay, so. Uh, so I thought it'd be really cool what we could do is I'm going to share with you how I study the scriptures. And in a way, when I study the scriptures, I'm also preparing for a sermon, right? So when I start reading the scriptures, I usually start with prayer. And prayer usually is me asking the Spirit to illuminate the text for me. What I mean by this is when, I, when, I, when we read the Bible, depending on our biases, uh, depending on our experiences or the way that we reason, we different things start to pop up in the scriptures, right? But as a pastor, I don't want to just talk about the things that pop up to me. I want to make sure that I'm talking about the things that God wants me to talk about. So I always, before I start studying the scriptures, I pray. So I thought it'd be kind of cool if uh, we start this time with prayer, okay, and see what the Lord brings up for us today. So let's pray. Jesus, uh, we are about to look at your holy word, and we want to treat it with respect. Uh, we want this text to come to life, and we want to find application. We want to find inspiration. So, Lord, we ask that you would guide our eyes, guide our hearts, guide our biases, so that we see the scriptures in the way that you want us to see it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, uh, today we're going to be looking at John chapter, oh my goodness, 8. I think it's chapter 8. And it's just the first section. If you notice, I don't have the verse numbers written there. I have line numbers. And the reason I do that is because... Um, these verses, sometimes they cut off in the middle of a sentence and it's distracting. So what I did was I split it up by sentences and thoughts. So let's start. We'll read through it once. If anything stands out to you guys, highlight it, circle it, write notes next to it. You can do whatever you want. And there might be a little bit of participation that might, be, you know, we might experience today. So we'll see. That's if you're not shy. Okay, here we go. The first line. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay. Line two. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Okay, let's keep reading. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Uh-oh. Next line. 
they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Man, I just don't like the way the story's going already. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Let's see what Jesus says. Well, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, that's Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Hmm, okay, next line. When they kept on questioning him, we don't know what questions they were asking him, right? It doesn't really say. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Line eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus wrote on the ground twice, I guess. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Okay, so now it's just a woman and Jesus, line 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Line 11, no one, sir, she said. Line 12, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, so this is where we're gonna end the story today. So I hope you guys highlighted things, maybe you circled things, right? This is us studying the scriptures together. The person next to you might have circled different things. You know, I, when I study this passage, I'm gonna share with you guys some of the things that I wrote down. So the next step in studying the Bible, for me, is a step I like to call curiosity. What stood out to you, right? Point out what stands out to you, and usually what helps me is if I write it in question form. So like, oh, I noticed this. Now let's see if you could change it into question form. So I'll give you an example. Here's one of the questions I wrote down. How did they catch the woman while committing adultery? There's an implication in this passage that says they caught her in the act of adultery. So were they like, they didn't have secret cameras back then, right? So how did they do that? See, this is me being curious. Um, so you could write down whatever, okay? Um, I'll, I'll list for you guys some of the questions I asked and maybe you guys could share with me what you thought. Okay, here we go, next question I asked. Why was the man not caught while committing adultery? It takes two to tango and we only have one person that's being accused here. I think that's pretty weird. Okay, next one. Does this passage belong in the Bible? If you have your own Bible with you, or you have an app or whatever, there's a little note in the beginning of this section that says, in some versions of the early manuscripts, this passage is missing. So in some Bibles, this is in there. In some Bibles, it's not in there. In some versions, this, this story is found in the book of Luke. And probably because the writing style of this passage looks like it was written by Luke, but it's in the book of John. So like, why, you know, does it even belong here? Right, that's a good question to ask, I think. Next. Does the law really say that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned? Like, I wanted to make sure that these religious rulers were accusing the woman of being caught in adultery, saying that she needs to be stoned. Are they accurate in the way that they understood the Old Testament laws? So that's another question I asked. Uh, here's another question. What did Jesus write on the ground? Have you ever guys wondered? Like, he stooped and he started writing, and they're like, Oh, is that a little house with a triangle? They're like, they're like, what was Jesus doing, right? It's like, Jesus, your stick figures look pretty bad. You know, like, what was he doing? Was he writing something? Was he writing something in Hebrew or Aramaic? Or I don't know. Like, what was he doing? Or was he just doodling? We don't know, right? Next one. Why do the older men walk away first? Did you notice that in the story? That's another question that I asked. I'm like, wonder why. Um, here's another question. I'm, I'm a very curious person, by the way. Why does Jesus ignore the law at the end? Like, if the law really says you're supposed to do that, 
it seems like Jesus walks away from this story without really fulfilling that law. So is Jesus ignoring the law here? Right? Uh, here's another question. What questions do the religious leaders ask Jesus? You know, they don't say what the question was, so is it unimportant to the story? Okay, what questions did you come up with? Anybody, just shout it out. Did I cover all of them? Yeah. What was Jesus writing in the sand? Yes, great question. Any other questions? I love that, yeah. We might answer that question today. <laughs> the question is, is that even, even yeah, is it relevant to the story, like what he wrote on the ground? I mean, apparently, it seems like the religious leaders saw Jesus writing on the ground, and they were like, I'll see you later, Jesus. Like, <laughs> like something, right? It was, something happened here. Anybody else? Any other questions? Oh, in John 4, the woman at the well. Yeah. And she was also uh, Oh, okay, so that's another question that would be, like, so the question that Bill asked is, in John chapter 4, there's a similar story to this. In that story, there's a woman at the well who, I don't know if she was a prostitute, but she had several husbands before, and the one she was with is not her husband, right? And um, she was ashamed. And just like this woman probably is. Yeah, so are they related? Are they connected somehow? Very good question. Looking at stories that happened before to see if there's any connection is a very, very advanced thing to do. Bill? <laughs> any other? Yes? Yeah, why is Jesus stooping down and then he stands up. Every time he's talking to somebody, he seems to be standing, right? So is there a pattern that's going on here? Is there a gest this gesture making a difference in the way the story plays out? Yes, Michael. He stands up when he's talking back to the Pharisees. But yeah. when he's teaching, he's sitting. Oh, yeah. So if you look at the stories of like the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus is actually sitting, right? So when he's teaching to his disciples, he's sitting down. But when he's being accused of something, and he's talking back to these religious leaders, he's standing. Also, number two, he's sitting. Yeah, yeah, when he's teaching number two, you're right. That is a common posture of rabbis in those days to, to be sitting while you're teaching. So apparently it seems like when he's talking to the religious leaders, he's not really teaching them, right? Very good observation. So what does that mean? Is there a significance to that? This is cool. I love this. You see, this is what I mean by like talking about passages in community. So rich. Okay, so the next step that I'm going to take after this, and we're going to answer these questions hopefully. It's not a failure of Bible study if we can't answer all these questions. These questions are there to help us move forward. Okay, it's like, okay, which direction are we supposed to go? God, which way am I, are you leading me? So, okay. Next, we're going to be looking at context. Context, there's three types of context that we have to look at. Literary context means what happens before in this story? What happens after this story? Does anything in the context of this, the text give us insight as to what this is supposed to mean or what is it supposed to do? Is it a pivoting point? Like if Jesus is happy before and angry after, then maybe this is the point where everything changed, right? Next, cultural context. Is there something happening in this culture that we're not familiar with? Maybe sitting down meant one thing and standing meant another thing, right? Historical context. What was happening in history at that time that this was written? What does it mean to the people who read it for the first time? What does it mean for the people who are actually in this story, right? Stuff like that. We're not gonna look at all this, but I will present to you the context that is relevant to understanding this story, okay? So, 
What we learn, I know you guys don't have the previous chapter. If you read the previous chapter, what you learn is that this story takes place on the day after this thing called the Festival of Tabernacles. Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, so that means the previous chapter, everything leading up to this story was this eight-day festival called the Feast or the Festival of Tabernacles. It's an eight-day feast, like I said, eight-day party. Right? I know that Kendall had a great party last night. Okay, and, <laughs> and that eight-day party in the Hebrew is called Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, Sukkot. We call it the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. It, it, it means the same thing. Okay, so you're like, feasts? What, what are these feasts? Feasts are basically, there's seven holidays in the Jewish calendar. Today there's more, but back in those days there's only seven. And these seven were were commanded by God for you to observe, okay? So here are the seven I wanna show you on a timeline. This is the order in which these, these things happen. Every single year, they are commanded to follow, uh, celebrate these, it's like thou shalt party, okay? And if they don't, then, then you're cut off, right? So you have to do these seven parties. It starts with Passover, and by the way, each of these festivals are connected to a historical event, mostly which happened in the Exodus. They were slaves, right? Pharaoh said, you can't go. But then, but God spoke to Moses and said, there's gonna be a spirit of death that's gonna come over Egypt. And um, yeah, and the day that that happened is called Passover, right? And then they're like, okay, tonight is the night you're gonna leave, so make sure you, you take your food, take your, you know, just let's, let's go. They're like, we don't have time for, to bake bread. It's like, well, that's because you don't have time to watch it rise. So you have to make unleavened bread. So there's a festival called the unleavened bread. First fruits is God's provision while they're in the desert. Pentecost is when they receive the law from God, right? Trumpets is basically their new year. That God said, this is a new time for new season for your, you Israelites. So today is gonna be known as your New Year's Day. We have atonement. The Israelites kept on defying God in the desert. <clears throat> and God's like, guys, you wanna go to the promised land? You can't go in like this because you are so defiant. It's like, oh, we're so sorry. And so that day of atonement, they sacrificed a lamb to show that, you know, they. Like, we're really sorry, and they made a festival out of that. And Tabernacles, finally, the last one of the year, well, in our year, their year, it'll be like the third one, right? In their year, uh, the Tabernacle is basically saying, you know, while we were out in the desert for 40 years, we lived in tents, these little uh, makeshift homes, and God's tent was among us, so it's like it represents God living with us while we're in the desert. So these are the seven feasts. Now, what's really interesting is, okay, let's go to the next slide. This is for this year. Every year, it's a different date. Um, for 2023, these are the days, April 3rd, uh, 5th, 6th, 7th, May, right? As you can tell, next slide, the, next, the, the first four, is, they're called the spring feasts. They happen in the spring. And the last three are called the fall feasts because they happen in the fall season, right? So these, while these seven feasts were connected to historical events, what they started to discover is that they're also connected in timing to their harvest calendar. Okay, so um, usually um, they plant seeds and they, you know, they want their crops to grow around here so they could harvest it around here, okay? They heavily depend on rain to come to them in the winter season. So if this was you, let's just imagine, this is another exercise I like to do. I try to imagine myself in that setting. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. You're here to celebrate God amongst being with us, right? But you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, okay, I know God is with us, but we have crops that needs to grow or else we're gonna starve next year. W- what are we gonna do? 
And so they start asking God for rain. So one of the things that they did at the Feast of Tabernacles is that they had this whole, the eight days, they didn't just celebrate God being with them. They also celebrated um, and asked God to send rain. Okay, are we following right now? So this is like a cultural and historical context, okay? Oh, by the way, I want to show you a picture. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles look today. Um, every year, they sit up, well, they don't do tents anymore. They do like these really nice, like, <laughs> they, they build it out of wood, and on the top, they put palm branches and everything. So even people who live on the second floor, on their balconies, they build these little boxes. <laughs> That's kind of cool, I think. Okay, anyways, so the Festival of Tabernacles, what do they do? So they talk, so for the eight days, think about like an eight-day party with a priest involved. So if you could imagine a party with a priest. The priest comes out and they start doing these rituals to see if God would bring rain this winter season, okay? So this is what they do. They offer sacrifices, they pray prayers, they sing songs, they do rituals, and they do teachings all in the name of God, please send us rain. Okay, this has become at the time that Jesus is alive, walking the earth, this is what the Feast of Tabernacles had turned into. It's basically this eight-day thing where they're asking God to send rain. And so just imagine, if you're the priest, you're going through the Old Testament, because that's all they had back then, and they're looking through Scripture and saying, what can I preach on, what can I preach on, what can I preach on? Are there any verses in the Old Testament about water? Right? So that's what they would do. Okay, so now, let's look at John chapter 7. This is a story that's leading up to the passage we're studying today. On the last day, last and greatest day of the festival, so that's the eighth day, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now, why is Jesus speaking in a loud voice here? It's because on the eighth day, the priest comes out with water and wine, goes to the altar, he, they pour it out as a part of their ritual, and then the whole crowd starts shouting, Hosanna, 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 which in Hebrew means, please save us, right? So they're asking God for mercy, please send us rain. Everybody's shouting, so if Jesus were to show up on the last day, he would have to raise his voice. So it makes sense, right? And then Jesus starts preaching a sermon. What do you think his sermon is about? Next verse. Let anyone who is thirsty, oh, it's a sermon about water, come to me and drink. It's like, you guys are desperate for water? Well, what about the thirst of your soul? If you have that, you need to come to me. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So it makes sense that Jesus is giving a sermon about water on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? It makes sense. It fits the context. No, it's okay. It's okay. Okay. So I want you to imagine being there. This is a really good exercise for learning context. While you're there, this is what you're observing. This is what I imagined in my head. There are thousands of people there. Everybody is coming to Jerusalem and sitting up tents, right? And there's crazy partying for eight, night, eight nights straight. There's a lot of wine. That's part of the celebration. And then there are hundreds of tents that are pitched around, the, around Jerusalem. So just imagine. The last night, everybody's saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, your voice is hoarse, you're tired, you're thirsty, and it's nighttime. You leave the walls of Jerusalem to go to your tent, your, you know, your, your tent, basically. And you're looking around, and there are no such thing as streetlights. It's dark outside. You look up, you see stars, which we don't see here in LA, right? And you're looking around, hoping to find your own tent. Just like last night, Justin and I, we went out to this thing, and we we're looking for our car on the way home. We're like, where do we park? What do we park? That's how I was at Dodger Stadium a few weeks ago. Where do we park? 
And that's, that's basically, imagine that happening with tents. You're looking around, every tent looks alike. And so you're looking around like, is this it? And you, it's not like they have lights inside. So you're hoping that the tent you enter is yours and you go to sleep and wake up in the morning and find out you're in somebody else's tent, right? Apparently that happened a lot back in these days, okay? Because they would have these uh, lamps with uh, olive oil, but olive oil is really expensive. So, okay, are you guys following so far? Trying to be in that, con- okay. So imagine you're completely drunk, which is acceptable back in that day for this specific celebration. You're tipsy, you're walking out, and you see all these tents in front of you. You have no idea which one's yours, but you think you know where it is. What are the chances of you stumbling upon somebody else's tent, finding out it's somebody else's, and then you're not just entering to somebody's tent, but you're also entering to somebody else's arms? It's very likely this would happen. So with that in mind, it makes sense that on the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. Are you guys tracking so far? Okay, and the religious leaders, they knew this. They knew that this was a common occurrence, and so they didn't have to look hard to find somebody who's caught in the act of adultery. Not that hard, right? And so now that, they, that the religious leaders bring this woman in front of Jesus, this is what they say. This is line five. In the law, Moses commands, uh, commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So what verse are they referring to here? What law are they talking about here? Well, the religious rulers, they're referring to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. This is what that says. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Notice it says both. By the way, if you've been here for any length of time, I like to highlight certain words. These are words that I typically circle, like when I print it out, I'm circling these words, that's why I highlight it so you know what stood out to me. But it says both. Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. But in the story we read today, were both brought to Jesus? No, only one of them were. So these religious rulers are not following the law as it is written. Are you guys following? So the, the woman is not the only one that's guilty in this story. The people who are accusing the woman are also the ones that are guilty of not following the law. So Jesus has this predicament. The law does say they're supposed to stone her, but she's here alone, which doesn't really follow the law, right? On the other hand, we have these people who are self-righteous, <laughs> these religious rulers, who are tattled, like, they're throwing her under the bus. And then John tells us something very interesting, line six. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus, right? So this is what the religious rulers are doing. They know that Jesus has followers who are devout people who are following the law day and night and people who have fallen off the edge, like these people are not good Jews, right? He's popular with both sides. The Jews, these these religious rulers, what they're trying to do is if they bring this case before Jesus and Jesus says, you know, forget the law, let's just give the woman a second chance, his devout followers will leave him. If Jesus says, you're right, the law says we're supposed to stone her, then the people who are on the edge, on the fringe, will leave Jesus. They're trying to thin out the the herd for Jesus. They're trying to make him less popular. So Jesus knows that this is what they're trying to do. Like, I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to make my followers like lose trust in me. I I see what they're trying to do, right? So how does Jesus respond to this accusation? Well, the second part of line six says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So it's like, what is he writing? Well, let's, let's look at what we learned so far from context study, okay? They just finished what feast? 
the Feast of what? Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, what have they been taught? What, what were they studying for eight days? About water, thank you. About water, these are not trick questions, guys. <laughs> okay, so, so far what we know is that fresh on the minds of everybody who's there present, they've been learning about the spiritual significance of water, right? Because they've been preaching from the scriptures about water. Now, like I said, these priests, they look through the Old Testament and they try to find verses that pertain to that very topic. One of the verses that they always taught on every single year is from Jeremiah chapter 17. Okay, what does Jeremiah 17 say? Well, let's take a look. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. That sounds pretty good. Okay, next verse. They will be like a tree planted by the water, there's the teaching on water, that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, it leaves, its leaves are always green. It's like the people who are connected to God, they're not afraid of drying out because they're always connected to the source of life. That's what this is saying. Great teaching, right? Next verse. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Even if like, their soul is, is, is dry, they're still gonna be green. Oh man, what a great teaching, right? So you can see why this passage was taught on during that time. Next verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah is saying, but there are people out there who are going against staying close to the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. He says, there are people who pretend to be close to me, but you could tell by their leaves, it's not green, right? Because you know what? I look at people's hearts, I know their minds. Even though they might be doing the right things, I know that they're, they're being deceitful. Okay, now we skip to verse 13. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Hmm, we're talking about those deceitful people. Next verse. Those who turn away from you will be written in the what? Dust. So when Jesus stoops down and starts writing in the dust, everyone's like, we just studied this for eight days. We know what you're talking about, Jesus. You're talking about Jeremiah 17. What does the next verse say? It says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What is Jesus doing here, guys? Jesus, next verse, oh, next slide, is making a reference to a familiar verse without even not saying a word. Like, this is crazy, right? Jesus stoops down, starts doing things, and they're like, oh gosh, I know he's talking about Jeremiah 17 right now. But not everybody catches on to that. I don't expect everybody to catch, like, when you read the book of John, I don't think you're like, my goodness, this is Jeremiah 17, right? People back then didn't catch on to that, that quickly either. Okay, just letting you know. What is the message that Jesus is trying to teach these people? He's saying, you religious people, you guys have forsaken God. You, you act like you're following the rules and everything, but you're really not. Because God knows, what does the verse say? He knows your hearts, he seeks out your mind. He knows exactly the intention behind what you're doing, trying to do. So you know what? He's gonna write your name in the sand, in the dust. Now, why is that significant? Because anything that's etched in stone is there forever, as long as the stone exists. If you write something in the sand, just a gust of wind could blow your name out and your name is gone forever, right? So this is basically God's way of saying, you have no idea how dis destructive what you're doing right now is. You're using the word of God against this woman to get to me. Yeah, we know your intentions. I see your heart, I see your mind. So you know what? Jesus was probably writing the name of the people who were accusing the woman. Just my guess, okay? Are you guys following so far? 
context. It's coming to life, isn't it? I love that when it happens. Yeah, so good. Okay, let's look at line seven. When they kept on questioning him, which we don't know what he was, quest- he was being questioned of, but I don't think it really matters in this story now. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Meaning, you know you messed up. Not only does God know your heart and your intentions, but we also know that you didn't follow the law properly because you're supposed to bring both people here. So either way, you're, you are with sin. So yeah, if you're ready to throw the first stone, go ahead and throw it. And then Jesus demonstrates Jeremiah 17 again in the next line. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. In case you missed the first reference, let me do it again, right? And it's at that point that people start to recognize what Jesus is doing, right? So that's why line nine says this. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first. Why? Because the older people were more familiar with the Old Testament. These are the wise people. The older people were like, Oh my gosh, I totally know what Jesus is saying here. Oh my goodness, we're in so much doo-doo. Oh, I gotta, okay, gotta go, gotta go. And then younger ones, right, were like, oh, you know, they're slow, but they get there, right? It's like, get there faster. Like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta go, right? Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Question, if Jesus says, the person without sin be the first, cast the first stone, who is the only one in this story who is allowed to throw a stone? Jesus, he's the only one without sin. Does Jesus throw a stone? No. That should tell you something about Jesus' character, right? Now, remember how I said uh, last week or the week, oh no, I wasn't here last week, two weeks ago, that when you read scripture, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, my mind is all over the place. Ronnie did such a great job last week, right? I watched online, oh my goodness, when she talks about Jesus, she just lightens up and I just love it. Okay, anyways, back to this. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited right now. Okay. <laughs> Remember how I said that you're supposed to read scripture and discuss it in community? Well, I did this with this passage when I read it a few years ago, and somebody in my group mentioned this. I don't think it's word for word, but I put a quotation around it because it's not my thought. Isn't it scary that these men run their religious, political, cultural, and economic realities? These people who are trying to deceive Jesus, they were in charge of everything back then. And this person, who was actually a woman, said, God, isn't it scary that these people, these men, were the ones that were telling people how to connect with God, how to spend their money, how to, right? Like, isn't it scary that these people were in charge? And I thought, you know what? Maybe Jesus isn't just condemning these people. Maybe he's trying to confront a system here. Like, the religious system at the time was corrupt. And maybe Jesus was not just aiming his, his thoughts towards the religious men here, but the whole system that was built around it that make people like this woman get the shorter end of the stick every single time, right? So again, talking about this in community sometimes brings things to your view that was in your blind spot before. That's why it's important to talk to people about this stuff, right? Okay, so when I was learning how to study the scriptures in seminary, my professor said, you always have to ask yourself two questions before you close the Bible, okay? Because the Bible is trying to answer these two questions. Every story you read, it's supposed to reveal an answer to these two questions. The first question is this. What does this passage reveal about Jesus' character in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, just say God's character, right? What does this tell you about who Jesus is? And the second question is, what does this passage reveal about humanity's character? What does this say about us, the nature of humanity? So I'm gonna share with you some of the things I came up with. You don't have to agree with this, but for Jesus' character. Okay, so the first thing I came up with is this. That Jesus is merciful and compassionate. He was the only one that was allowed to throw a stone and he chose not to. 
He had every right to condemn her and he chose not to. That tells me that even when I deserve the worst consequence, Jesus looks at me and embraces me and says, it's okay, I don't condemn you. Nobody's perfect. That's basically what Jesus said here. He's not saying, go ahead and do it again, okay? He says, go and sin no more. But what he does say is, oh, what, nobody else is condemning you? Oh, if they don't have an issue with you, then I don't have an issue with you, so you could go, right? It tells me that he's very compassionate, he's forgiving. That's one thing I learned about Jesus from this story. The next thing that I also learned is that Jesus is claiming to be God here. The passage that he quotes without using a word, which is just like baller, it's amazing, right? He, he, he's quoting Jeremiah 17, where it says that God would write your name in the sand with his finger. And who writes their names in the sand in this story? Jesus does. Jesus is claiming to be God here. So that's another thing we learned about Jesus in this story. And the third thing, I'm sure there's more, the third thing I learned is that he does not tolerate using God to hurt other people, which I wish was relevant today, but yeah, this is just something I noticed. (laughs) Okay, I noticed that like people, like in this story, are like they're so focused on trying to hurt somebody, trying to prove Jesus wrong, that they will use anything in their arsenal, including God and the scriptures to hurt people. I think if the church stopped doing this, we would have a better reputation today. Okay, so before we move on to the humanity's characteristics, um, share with me, I wanna hear from you, what did you learn about Jesus' character in this story? Yeah, he is being himself. This is Jesus being comfortable, and this is like, this is who I am, guys, I'm forgiving. (laughs) You know, right, I'm compassionate. I'm God, like he's being himself, that's very good. Yes, did, did you have something? Merciful, yeah. That was the, like, the number one thing that stood out to me when I read this. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, Kelvin? Okay. If you're sitting, sitting down, it's, it's a posture of, of what I call uh, being uh, born spirit. Yeah, so uh, in case you didn't hear online, Kelvin was talking about the posture of Jesus, that when he was squatted down writing, he was probably at the level where the woman was, and when he was standing up, he was confronting the rulers who were probably standing up at the time, right? And it's a, it, the, the postures do matter in this story, it turns out. Um, I read some literature on the accused. Sometimes, like, are they standing or are they thrown on the ground, right? And I saw, I've seen both, where sometimes when people are caught in the act of, of crime, they are forced to be on, get on their knees because they're asking for mercy, right? So Jesus might have come down, not just to write something on the ground, but also to meet her where she is. That tells me something about Jesus' character, that he'll meet you where you are, right? Full yeah, full of empathy. Oh, man, isn't God amazing? Yes, empathy is love. I love that haiku. Thank you. Okay, anything else? Okay, let's move on to now 
Our character, humanity's character. What do we learn about humanity today, guys? This is like the part that's not fun. Okay, this is what I wrote down. We become blind, uh, we become blind in pursuit of our obsessions. These people are like, we want to get Jesus back, back so, like, you know, because they were like, there's a few going on. He's like, we want to get back at Jesus so bad, we're willing to possibly kill a woman for it. Like, they're not treating her as a human being. They're using her as a prop. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? We do that sometimes because we're so tunnel vision, right? All that matters is what's in front of us, the carrot that's in front of us that's dangling there. And you're like, I'm willing to use other people as stepping stones to get there. Yeah, we do that, don't we? What else did I learn about humanity? Um, these, we'll do anything to maintain our status. Um, these religious rulers were high up there. And what Jesus was doing was basically pulling the carpet or the rug from underneath them. You can't really pull a carpet, I guess. Yeah, pull a rug from underneath them, saying like, your religious ruling days are over, and these guys are attacking Jesus to do whatever they can to maintain their social status, right? And we would do anything, we would fight. We would, we would deceive people to maintain our status. So that's another thing I learned about humanity. What did you guys learn about humanity about through this verse, these, these verses? Sorry, I had more time to think about this than you, so I don't expect you guys to be like, oh, here's five things I learned about us, you know, okay. Okay, but the bottom line here is, this is how um, I study scripture, and you can almost see how this turns into a sermon, correct? Right? And so um, I'm not saying that this is how everybody needs to approach the passage, like the, the Bible, but I just want to give you an example of how I would approach such a passage. I picked this because um, it was like a verse that my friends and I were reading at the time, and so we're talking about it online, and I'm like, okay, I should bring this to the church. So if you have any questions about other things, because this is just the tip of the iceberg, if you have any questions about how to approach the passage, um, feel free to talk to me afterwards. Next week, Pastor Stan's going to teach you more of a meditative way of looking at scripture, which might be more appealing to you, and that's good too. Okay, so uh, with that, let's just close in prayer, and then we'll close in time of worship. Cool? Okay, let's pray.